Are you interested in joining a community of policy influencers working toward positive change? Consider Seton Hall University's results-driven executive graduate programs in international affairs. You can customize your studies through research in regional areas and specializations, including conflict management, global health security, and more. As a graduate candidate, you can leverage a collaborative and dynamic professional platform that includes one-on-one faculty mentorship, career workshops, international seminars, and discussions with global leaders on campus, at the UN headquarters in New York, and in Washington, D.C. The program is flexible. Study full-time or part-time, online or at the New Jersey campus just 14 miles from New York City. To learn more or sign up for a webinar, click the link in our episode description. Hi, I'm Casey Candela. And I'm Damila Labanja. Welcome to Unscripted. This is my first episode as I take the baton from Stephanie Fillion. I recently finished a master's degree in journalism at Columbia University. Before then, I worked with the BBC in my home country, Nigeria. Welcome, Damilola. In April, the United Kingdom chairs the Security Council as Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and allies in the West and civil society call for Russia to be expelled as a permanent member and stop its war in Ukraine. This is Unscripted, a podcast taking you inside the United Nations and beyond the scripted debates to the people at the heart of it all, the diplomats and the reporters covering them. Today, we talk with the UK's Deputy Permanent Representative, James Karuki, about Britain's goals as council president this month. He also gives us an inside look at his life in New York and at the UN. So I'm a bit of a, a UN junkie. I've been doing multilateral diplomacy in one, one form or another on and off for 25 years. But I love New York. This is my second posting in New York. I'm back here with my family, my kids were at school here, my son's kind of traded playing rugby for playing basketball, and my wife is a, is a journalist and she's enjoying it here. So this is a great place to be, it's a fantastic job, it's an honour to be the DPR um, in the UK mission, a country that has got so much to offer, um, but it's also a fantastic uh, city to live in, and um, uh, I'm trying to find a little bit of time amongst the work to enjoy the city as well. We are also joined by Mark Serden. And I've been a journalist all my life, really. I was editor of a paper called uh, Tribune, uh, which is a weekly paper, and it has a great internationalist record. I was, for many years, a member of the British Labour Party's National Executive Committee, but I fell out with uh, Tony Blair, the then Prime Minister, big time over the Iraq War. And uh, shortly afterwards, I came to New York and to the UN as Al Jazeera's UN correspondent in New York, when Al Jazeera was first launched, Al Jazeera English, that is. And I came back as a speechwriter for Secretary General Ban Ki-moon for a couple of years. And since that time, I've also worked for a president of the UN General Assembly, and I've also worked for UN agencies as a consultant for UNDP, for UNCTAD in Geneva. And I recently, well, I say recently, in the past two or three years, I set up a center for United Nations Studies at the University of Buckingham in England. All anyone seems to be talking about at the UN these days is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. 
but as Russia's recent history of hostility against its neighbors has shown, there's not much the UN Security Council can do. In 2014, Russia invaded and annexed Crimea and has backed separatists in eastern Ukraine since. Because Russia has veto power in the Security Council, the body was unable to act. The same pattern is playing out today. In late February, Russia invaded Ukraine with the goal of capturing Kyiv. Although that hasn't happened yet, due to resistance from the Ukrainians, the cities of Maripo and Kharkiv have been devastated. Civilian casualties continue to rise. At least 1,600 people have been killed and millions displaced, including two-thirds of Ukrainian children. Here's Deputy Ambassador Karuki on the Council's efforts despite Russia's veto. We're very determined that we don't allow Russia to get away with um, using the Council, um, abusing the Council for its misinformation. In terms of how we get around, I mean, there isn't a, a straightforward way around the Russian veto, to be honest. I think the best way around the Russian veto is uh, for Russia to be um, isolated, for Russia to understand it doesn't have support. And you saw, I think, in the first resolution, over 80 co-sponsors, the very first resolution on the moment of the Russian intervention. But uh, a couple of countries, including India and the UAE, abstained. Subsequently, when Russia brought its own humanitarian resolution, China was the only country that supported it, and 13 countries were against it. So I think there's a process of gradual isolation uh, of Russia in the Council. Ultimately, there will have to be some kind of uh, ceasefire resolution, which we hope Russia will adopt. But that has to come once Russia has taken the decision to um, stop the fighting and withdraw its troops. Russia recently said it was scaling back its Kyiv offensive to focus on strengthening its old and eastern Ukraine in the Donbas region. But images of carnage against civilians are emerging from towns near Kyiv, such as Vuka. A ceasefire remains elusive. Maxedon says, in negotiating peace, it is important to avoid humiliating Russia and its president, Vladimir Putin. Personally, my own view is that Russia has behaved in absolute breach of the UN Charter. It's acting illegally. There may well be war crimes taking place that have got to be investigated. I mean, what Russia is doing as a member of the Security Council is simply inexcusable, unforgivable. But at the same time, there really isn't a mechanism, I don't think, for removing a permanent member from the Security Council. And nor would I, even if there was, would I think that it'd be a wise thing to do, because at the end of all of this, there has to be a ceasefire, there has to be a peace agreement, and that must include Russia as the protagonist, as the invader. And I also think that it's going to be very, very important because it's, it would appear from where we are at the stage of this war now that Russia has experienced a whole series of military reverses. And actually, if we want to reach a peace and end this war and also ensure that Russia leaves Ukraine, we must ensure that Russia is not humiliated. We need to learn from our history. We need to learn from the First World War and the humiliation of Germany and the rise of Nazism. We need to learn these lessons, it seems to me. The Security Council is unable to expel Russia, but the country does not have veto power in the General Assembly. That body has passed various resolutions over Russian objections. They've condemned the invasion and demanded humanitarian aid access to Ukraine. 
Most recently, the GA voted to suspend Russia from the 47-member Human Rights Council in Geneva. In response, Russia announced it was resigning from the Human Rights Council. But Mark Seddon wants the UK to do more than hold Russia accountable at the UN. He says this is a good time for Barbara Woodward, the UK's permanent representative, to apologize for Britain's role in invading Iraq in 2003. Because of that invasion, some middle-income and poorer countries have questioned the moral rights of both Britain and the US to accuse Russia of violating another country's sovereignty. I haven't met the permanent representative of the UK, but I was very impressed by her. Um, I, I was hoping that she might be a bit more forthright in repudiating Britain's previous record over Iraq, because I think you have to be consistent if you want to gain the support for most countries for taking on Russia over its aggression. Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the ensuing sanctions from the international community have contributed to rising energy and food prices globally. While the markets were shocked, Deputy Ambassador Karuki was not. He says the UN, the US, and the UK saw it coming and did what they could to stop it. So look, it's very difficult when one large country, especially a permanent member, especially one that has nuclear weapons, carries out an act of aggression against a neighbour. I mean, we, um, you know, the, the UK, uh, the US, uh, other countries saw this coming. We, we called it out. We tried to prevent this coming. But it was very hard for people to believe, even when there was evidence presented, that Russia would go quite as far as it has done. People thought it was a negotiating tactic. A lot of people were involved in efforts to um, negotiate, to mediate, to understand. There were lots of talks between NATO and Russia, between the US and Russia, between France, uh, ourselves, my foreign minister went to Moscow. So in the last few months, people have been anticipating this problem and trying to stop it, including the UN Secretary General. But in the end, this is a war of Russia's choice. And I don't think anything we could have done was going to stop that decision being taken. Um, and it's part of a pattern. I mean, Russia has invaded Ukraine before. It's launched conflicts in Georgia in the past. So this isn't, an, isn't new. But we did everything we could to prevent the conflict. And we will continue to do what we can to try to stop it. Sedin agrees that the UN may not have been able to sway Putin. But he doubts that the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, has been pulling his weight. I think everybody knew that the situation was coming to a boiling point in Ukraine, but few perhaps expected that Russia would invade. I think looking back, and also actually at the time, it was apparent that there were some member states that were more active than the United Nations, actually. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking in particular about President Macron before the invasion. Uh, the, the Secretary General did seem to be rather absent, which is not saying that he wouldn't have been working behind the scenes. Of course not. But it did seem to many of us at the time that uh, this was probably the most important part of the, the most important time of the Secretary General's tenure. This is the biggest testing point, And he really wasn't uh, being visible. And to a degree, that has continued since. So clearly, the Security Council is hobbled by the use of veto. But clearly, opinion is still partially divided in the General Assembly because many uh, member states, especially in the global south, are saying, well, we do condemn what Russia has done in Ukraine, 
But some of the loudest voices are also those same voices, and I include by that the United States and Britain, who invaded Iraq against international law. Russia's invasion has continued to cause reverberations globally. But Deputy Ambassador Karuki says the UK is still keeping other conflict zones and international issues on its April agenda. Here's the ambassador. We don't want Russia's invasion to distract from everything else that matters in the world. So we will have two signature events, um, one on conflict-related sexual violence, which is about holding to account the perpetrators of sexual violence in conflict. And that's a subject that the UK has been focused on for some years, um, but my foreign secretary is particularly focused on right now. And it's about bringing perpetrators of sexual violence in conflict to justice and giving the victims of that violence the support they need. This has been a war crime for over 100 years, but we've continued to see examples of this practice in recent conflicts such as Myanmar, northern Ethiopia and Iraq. The UK's other signature event on COVID-19 already happened on April 11th. Here is the deputy ambassador on that. And then the second one will be a return to a theme we covered in our last presidency in February of last year, which is COVID and the importance of delivering COVID vaccines and tackling COVID, in particular in conflict and humanitarian situations. Last year in February, we passed Resolution 2565, which was calling for ceasefires in conflict zones and to allow the delivery of vaccines. And that Resolution 2565 was co-sponsored by 112 countries. But progress has been slow, let's be honest. And, And a year ago, we didn't have enough vaccines in those developing countries. I think now there's wider access to vaccines generally across the the developing world, but we need to turn those vaccines into vaccinations. And that means enabling populations in conflict-affected countries access to vaccines. If you look at places like DRC and Yemen, which are uh, obviously countries on the council's agenda, uh, less than 4% of their populations have been vaccinated. So those are two thematic issues that we'll be focusing on in the second week of our presidency. And then, of course, we'll have all of the regular thematic business, which um, you expect us to do. In Yemen, the warring sides have accepted a two-month ceasefire during the annual Ramadan fast for Muslims. Maxedon says the ceasefire may allow more vaccination to be administered in the war-torn country, doing so in Yemen and other conflict area as a top priority for the UK this month. I heard the British permanent representative um, speaking to the uh, UN correspondents, and and personally, I thought it was a a great agenda. I mean, not only in terms of getting vaccines out in conflict zones, but also gender-based violence during conflict, tackling that. Look, I mean, it's very easy to be dismissive and say, oh, well, what can you do? But you have to do something. And I think that um, in in terms of what the UK has chosen to do, and by the way, I'm a frequent critic of UK governments, but I think this is pretty good. And I'm also pleased to see that they're going to continue putting the military junta in Burma, Myanmar, under pressure. So I'm pleased to see all of that. I think clearly the spread and the distribution of COVID vaccines globally has been extremely intermittent, slow, and um, in some places just non-existent. And I've heard the permanent representative talking about some of these countries where there's conflict, such as Yemen, where there is very, very little COVID vaccination availability. Now, that possibly could be something that could happen during the British presidency, because we have 
and one mustn't be too cynical about it, but we have a Ramadan ceasefire in Yemen. So there could be an opportunity um, of some real progress there. We'll be right back. Are you looking for a talk show featuring leading global voices? Do you want to learn more about how international issues directly affect people locally? Global Connections Television presents the insights of global influencers at no cost to viewers and programmers. GCTV is independently produced and reaches more than 70 million potential viewers worldwide each week. The show covers everything from human rights to climate change, from peace and security to empowering women and girls. It features guests such as Dr. Jane Goodall, former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Mary Robinson, and Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary. The show also hosts expert voices from the private sector, academia, and labor and environmental movements. GCTV is available to public television media outlets, universities, and service clubs for distribution. To watch the show or find out more, click the link in our episode description. Now, back to the show. The UK is presiding over the council at a time when many UN watchers are wondering whether Russia's invasion is changing international norms, the balance of power, and the UN's role in preserving world peace. For example, many fear that the response to this invasion will affect China's behavior toward Taiwan. Deputy Ambassador Karuki says the response to Russia's invasion sends a signal to other countries of the consequences for this type of behavior. I think at the moment, Russia is paying a very heavy price for this invasion. Um, it miscalculated the extent of Ukrainian resistance. And so it's paying a, a price on the battlefield. It's paying a huge economic price in terms of the sanctions um, that have been brought to bear on Russia. And it's paying an international reputation price because it is isolated internationally and it's losing support all the time. So I think um, if anyone else were thinking of doing something like this, that's a pretty clear signal to them that when you invade neighbouring countries, that you don't get welcomed with open arms. On the contrary, international opinion turns against you and you pay that price. The biggest price is being paid by the Ukrainian people, but it's also a price being paid by Russians, Russian families losing their loved ones on the battlefield, Russian people who are paying an economic price domestically and who are being suppressed when they try to protest against this war. Since the 21st century began, at least three of the five permanent members of the Security Council have violated the UN Charter by invading other countries. And China has cracked down on human rights violations in Tibet, Hong Kong, and Xinjiang province. Sadden says it's time for the council to finally face reform. From the humanitarian perspective to the economic perspective, this war in Ukraine is an absolute disaster. But more than that, we have seen the threats from President Putin and also a counter threat from President Biden over use of nuclear weapons. And in my lifetime, I've never seen anything like this. By the way, I was born in 1962, so that's a year after the Cuban Missile Crisis. That was when the world stood and thought, are we on the precipice of a nuclear war? And there have been times that I and many other people have thought, could we be on the precipice 
of another. Because what incremental steps could presage the pressing of the red button? So these are deeply, deeply disturbing, worrying times. And they do present to my mind the biggest challenge to the United Nations since the Second World War. We cannot afford to have people making comparisons of the United Nations with the League of Nations, and that is beginning to happen. And yet at the same time, I don't personally buy into that because I'm seeing a much more proactive General Assembly. But you know, in all of this too, I think it does, and this is why it would be quite interesting to see if the British could actually in this presidency atone for past misdeeds themselves, as the South Africa Broadcast Corporation uh, correspondent Sherman Bryce Peace was saying at the press conference the other day, in order to argue for a new consistency, abiding by the charter, uh, standing by international law, not invading other countries, whether they be Iraq or Ukraine, the vital need for new non-proliferation treaties, the need for UN Security Council reform. This is a time also for the reform of an organisation that is not working at some levels. People can see this. So there are enormous challenges. But um, at the end of the day, I mean, I remain a great enthusiast, always have been for the United Nations, but it just, it needs to step up a gear. This episode was co-produced by me, Casey Candela, and Banjo Damilola for Pass Blue, an independent women-led media site covering the United Nations and global affairs. Dulcie Leinbach is our editor, AI Digital created our podcast logo, and our music is by Poddington Bear. A lot happens at the UN beyond what we report in each episode of Unscripted. And Pass Blue is covering the important news from women's rights to human rights. For day-to-day coverage, Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And to subscribe to our newsletter, go to passblue.com. Pass Blue's in-depth and exclusive stories and this podcast are possible with the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the Open Society Foundations, and listeners like you. To show your support, visit Pass Blue's website and click Donate. Unscripted is available wherever you find podcasts. If you like today's show, please rate us on iTunes and share it with all your friends. With the world ravaged by wars, infectious disease, and climate change, we need to ask, what do we want the world to look like in 2030? The New School's Julian J. Studley Graduate Programs in International Affairs will prepare you to use your career to create a more just world order. Based in New York City, these master's degree programs will give you deep insight into global issues such as conflicts, migration, human rights, development, and media, as well as the skills you'll need to work in these areas. The program also offers an international field program, UN summer study, and student team consultancies with intergovernmental and non-governmental organizations. To find out more, click the link in our episode description.